Hi, my name's Sam Breakgear and welcome to Brains Bite Back. We are the podcast that looks at society and technology and analyzes the psychology that takes place between the two. Two years ago, Vice released a video on inmates using VR to help prepare them for the outside world. The tasks performed in this virtual world were pretty simple. It's just everyday chores, for example, laundry. But I was inspired by how this technology was being used so effectively to help inmates. And I wanted to learn how technology can be used to improve the lives of inmates and to help reduce recidivism. To discuss this topic, I'm joined by a guest who has worked as a senior spokesperson and director of public information for state and national criminal justice agencies. He is also the owner and operator of CrimeInAmerica.net, Leonard Sipes. And for our Tech This Out feature, we have a live TV news debate featuring Steve Jobs and a privacy advocate from 1981, discussing the dangers of privacy due to computers becoming more prevalent in our lives. Uh, Len, would you be able to start by telling everyone your history within working in the prison systems, please? Well, it's an interesting background, and I'll try to make it as short as humanly possible. Started off in uh, law enforcement for six years, left law enforcement to go to college, came out, did a variety of gigs dealing with offenders in the community, gang counseling, that sort of thing. Uh, ended up with uh, Department of Justice gigs in terms of uh, being the senior specialist for crime prevention for the National Criminal Justice Reference Service, and then going over to the National Crime Prevention Council. From there, I became the director of public information for the Maryland Department of Public Safety and Correctional Services, which included three correctional systems. So I spent 14 years with corrections being my primary beat, although we had law enforcement agencies as well. I know you're very knowledgeable on this subject, and that's why I wanted to bring you in. In its most basic form, before we get started, it would be great to have an understanding of the situation as it stands before we get into technology. Would you be able to explain, and like I said, in the most basic form, because I know we could be here all day talking about this, why recidivism rates currently are so high? We don't know, to be perfectly honest with you, and it's rather distressing. We have two really good studies from the U.S. Department of Justice, one dealing with serious and violent offenders and one dealing with the Second Chance Act, and both show no reductions whatsoever in recidivism. Most of the studies that do show reductions in recidivism show only small reductions, somewhere in the ballpark of 1% to 10%, and there are some studies out there that made things worse. So... Uh, we, criminologically speaking, we really do need to have a much better understanding as to why we're having such a problem in terms of lowering uh, rates of recidivism when we implement programs. The other side of it is that if you take a look at recidivism across the board, whether it be rearrest or reincarcerations, if you go out nine years, which is the last and longest report by the U.S. Department of Justice, it's reaching 80% of people rearrested. So the recidivism rates are extraordinarily high. It could be up to 60% in terms of reincarceration rate. We all understand that we've got to do better, but quite frankly, nobody really knows how to do better. You stated, um, well, there's some hope it might seem in technology. I know that you stated that technology is the holy grail of prison treatment. Um, would you be able to expand on that a little bit and explain how you believe technology can be utilized for the re rehabilitation process? Well, most prison systems in the United States devote few resources to rehabilitation programs. And the reason why they devote few resources is the fact that they don't think they work and the 
data indicates that they do not work or they don't work that well. So if, if you have such a bad track record in terms of, of success, it's really hard to throw money in that direction. So the speculation on the part of many criminologists is that we just do not provide enough services. And if we're going to get states, I mean, prison systems are ungodly expensive. They're very complicated to run properly. It takes a real art uh, to running a correctional system properly. If you're going to, if we have these problems in terms of allocating money and providing the level of treatment that some of us believe will make a difference, then it has to be done through technology. The state simply won't put up the money until we prove that this works. So, for instance, you could have one person in a television studio in a central location, and preferably this person would be an ex-offender, but coming out doing well, possibly with a college degree, and instructing all other inmates all throughout the prison system via closed-circuit television uh, as to you know the benefits of drug treatment, what happens with drug treatment, what happens with educational programs, what happens with vocational programs, GED programs, learning how to read programs. It, it, all of this needs to be done either through tablets or technology where you can scale technology to reach as many people as possible. And the data on remote learning for the non-correctional population seems to be pretty encouraging. So if the data on the non-correctional population through remote learning, if we're getting encouraging results, and I've taught college, by the way, through remote learning. If you can get good results through remote learning, then that seems to be the way to go. And you have some prison systems that are beginning to experiment with this sort of thing. I think that sounds like an excellent idea, because I would assume that education is surely the best tool to reduce recidivism. If you give an inmate a skill or an ability or even a desire to better themselves, then that has to do wonders for keeping them out of prison and giving them something to strive towards. But outside of um, technology being used as like a teaching tool in this kind of remote learning sense, are there other examples of technology being used in the rehabilitation process? Well, they're all based upon tablets nowadays. And understand that the principal reason for being for a correctional facility is security and crime prevention and public safety. So you know, we've had instances in the past where we've given access to inmates uh, via computer, via the Internet, and bad things have happened. So the first thing is the creation of a tablet that's extremely secure, that can't be compromised, where you can't be in touch with your crime buddies in the community perpetuating more crimes, that you're not going to be harassing victims of crime. You're not trying to be intimidating anybody. So it has to be very secure technology in terms of tablets. Now, the great majority of correctional facilities that are using tablets are using them solely as a basis for contacting friends, contacting family members. There is thought to be uh, some sense that if you remain in contact with pro-social elements in the community, that helps you in terms of your return from the prison system. So at the moment, 80% of the technological advance here is simply keeping the inmate in touch with the family, the family in touch with the inmate. There's controversy there because the states don't have the money to do it. So what they're doing is relying upon private providers, and these private providers are making a profit off of providing that tablet to the individual. What we really need to do is to go way beyond that and simply have 
real-time instruction, whether it be bricklaying, whether it be drug treatment, whether it be learning how to read from a centralized location and pushing that out to inmates either via a tablet or a classroom setting. That's the only way that we're going to be able to maximize the amount of instruction, maximize the amount of hope in terms of prison inmates, because quite frankly, what we're doing now is not working. No, definitely, especially with the rates of recidivism that we see. And it's funny because you mentioned something which I've heard about before, is the private prisons. I actually remember seeing a video talking about how there is technology in prisons, however, it's primarily for the profit of these private companies. And there is like a form of Skype that exists within prisons, but you have to pay uh, an extortionate or ridiculous amount just to stay in contact with family members. And I also read another article which said that you can't, in some prisons, like uh, family members can't even give inmates birthday cards, which they've selected at a shop. They have to go through this company. So therefore, there's like a, a small selection of cards, which they can then select from this company. And then the company will hand it to them or give it to them. So it seems like there's a huge barrier in the way of for-profit prisons where they have these services and they're purposely, I suppose, inefficient for the sake of making money. So that will be a huge hurdle in order for technology to to really advance i suppose it needs they need to disappear or at least change before progress can be made the states need to put up the money that's the bottom line we don't need private companies doing this if the state or the federal government puts up the money the only reason why these private companies are doing it is because the state and the federal government will not put up the money. The problem with drugs in prison, contraband in prison, uh, you can secrete drugs within a card. I understand from a security point of view, and remember, there are overdoses within prison systems, especially if you are going for a long time without being exposed to drugs, and suddenly drugs are secreted within these cards. And you can have, as you well know, blotter acid, you can have... I mean, you can secrete the drug to the point where you can't even open up the card and see it. And, and people die within prison systems because, you know, the fact that they haven't been using drugs in the past year and suddenly they have access to, to drugs through the card. So I understand the problem. I also understand that we can solve it if states and the federal government will put sufficient funds into it, but they simply won't. So that's why they rely upon the private sector to provide these devices, because, quite frankly, the states and, and, and the federal government are unwilling to do it. Corrections is ungodly expensive. Governors, there's not a governor in this country that has not expressed dismay over why so much of their budgets are being taken up with correctional issues. The cost of health care and corrections is exploding. And quite frankly, health care is where the big technology push is in correctional systems because there you can remote doctors in and do a real-time diagnosis of an issue where a specialist may not be available. So that's where the real techno uh, technology and, and technological um, improvements are in terms of healthcare within prison systems. But it's the rehabilitation of people. At the moment, we're not doing well. You know, even if we do it simply for humanitarian reasons, you know, teaching a person how to read, teaching a person how to write, that can be done through remote learning. And why, after decades of acknowledging that this is probably the way to go, we haven't gone in that direction is, is pretty dismaying to, to those of us who want to see better outcomes for people who are in the prison system. Yeah, no, definitely. 
I actually had a previous episode where I spoke with two doctors about virtual healthcare, and they said it's something which hasn't taken off yet, but is is on the precipice of really taking off. And I think that if doctors could be utilized in this virtual sense in a prison setting, I think, yeah, that, that could be hugely beneficial. So hopefully that can be implemented pretty soon. I mean, we have almost have the the technology and the resources to get that going. So I suppose that would be another case of the government taking the step forward to do that or the initiative. But I also wanted to ask you about something else you previously stated. Uh, VR can help with vocational programs. How do these programs work and how can they help reduce recidivism? The, the whole idea, once again, the premise, the very premise is, is that we provide programs now in terms of a reduction in recidivism there doesn't seem to be a reduction in in recidivism so you can take a look at this issue from the standpoint of providing a burglar with a bricklaying program because what you generally speaking end up with is a burglar with a bricklaying program upon release so what we're talking about doing is a comprehensive approach to the needs of people within the prison system uh, the mental health problems of people in prisons are enormous. There are you know, some surveys that will simply say the majority of people in prisons have histories of substance abuse, have histories of mental health problems, have histories of child abuse and neglect, have uh, being abused as children or sexually abused. There are some studies showing that upwards of 80% of women in prison systems have been sexually abused as children. Nobody's addressing that because the money to address that is is just immense. So the idea of being able to talk directly through a tablet or talk directly in a classroom situation to a former female offender who's now gained her master's or bachelor's and to talk very frankly to women about their history of sexual abuse and what it's done to them, the impact it has on their ability to be a productive member of society, that by itself is is something that we should be doing. It's not a matter of just doing this or that. It's a matter of a comprehensive array of technologies to engage that offender and to help him or her understand what happened to them. You know, virtually all have histories of substance abuse. And when I say histories of substance abuse, I'm not talking about occasional use. I'm talking about, in some cases, daily use on a, on a regular basis. So and most of that is driven by the abuse that they've gone through in the past. Many inmates have PTSD from the violence that they were exposed to in the communities and by the violence that they were exposed to within their own families. So somehow, some way, we've got to be able to engage offenders and say, this is probably what's happened to you over time. And this is how it affected you over time. And here are the issues that I have dealt with or we have dealt with over time because I come from the same background. And this is how we overcame them. And this is what you can do to realize what's happened to you and how to deal with it. Until we do that, the underlying reasons for so many people being caught up in the correctional system. Again, remember, the recidivism rate is extraordinarily high, regardless of what it is we do. So we have to do that. If the person can't read, they can be taught to read. 
remotely. If the person needs a GED or an eighth grade certificate, they can probably do that online. So it's not just a matter of a bricklaying program or a plumbing program. There's a desperate need within our society for the hard trades, plumbing, electricity, uh, other aspects, you know, auto mechanics. No, you're not going to learn how to brick, how to lay bricks simply by doing it remotely. But you can learn maybe 60% of what it is that you need to know remotely. There is a point where you have to have hands-on skills uh, in terms of how to lay bricks or how to be a plumber's assistant or how to be an an electrician. Uh, But much of that can be accomplished remotely. Much of that can be accomplished through tablets or through classroom settings. We simply need the will and we simply need the determination to offer these things. And the only way you can scale, the only way that you can have a successful program across the board is through technology. The states simply cannot afford, until we prove that it's successful, the states simply cannot afford to to do this on a one-on-one basis. I think... uh... It's going to be a complex, there's a collection of factors at play here, and that's why when I said initially about the recidivism, can you explain it in the most basic form? Because you've just touched upon a number of topics, and especially one thing which um, really stuck out for me was when you talked about the underlying issues of like where these people come from and why, why they are suffering and why they've ended up where they are. And it's interesting because uh, last year I spoke with Professor Celia Morgan at Exeter University, and she is a professor of psychopharmacology. She said that the majority, the one thing that we see in addiction when it comes to drug addiction is a lot of the time there's a basis for trauma. And most people that are addicts or have some form of strong addiction and end up in the criminal system do come from some sort of trauma. And that's kind of like a Um, resonates with what you were saying about the 80% of women in prison systems and she said that our opinion of when we hear about stories of a child being a victim of sexual abuse we see them as victims and we feel a great amount of empathy for them but as this person gets older and they often fall through the cracks our image of them changes from that victim that we feel sympathetic for towards a person that we see as some almost a issue as a problem that we don't treat as we should and you mentioned about the ability to do therapy, perhaps remotely. And I'm at the moment speaking with a potential guest that's going to come on and they have a VR company and they're working to help uh, children or and young adults who, are, who have escaped to the sex trafficking industry. They're working to have sessions using virtual reality with therapists. So say if they are unable to make it to where the therapist is, they can use virtual reality, these children, to be in an environment which is virtual with their therapist allowing them to overcome these issues and i think that that would be one step further obviously if women in prisons were or men even or whoever that needed it were able to talk to therapists i think that remotely virtually talking like we are talking now from from other parts of the world is a great step forward and then even then if it was to be taken forward using vr that would be a fantastic step but it sounds like what you're getting at is the main things that we need is mostly virtual or not necessary virtual reality, but even just speaking with someone from a distance, learning from a distance and then health, whether mental or physically from a distance as well. It's always amazing to me as to the women, say, that have been caught up in the criminal justice system as to how they've told me that they've gone for years 
decade without understanding what happened to them, without fully realizing the impact on their lives. You, you cannot be a victim of sexual abuse at eight and nine and 10 years old, uh, especially through somebody who you know pretty well or, or, or your own relative, without it having an ungodly detrimental impact on your life. And, you know, to sit and talk with women caught up in the criminal justice system who are exposed to those issues and they do talk amongst themselves and they have talked to a therapist, it can be life-changing. It can be the, the, the difference between a person continuing a life of crime and a, a person going back, reuniting with your children, because virtually all of them have children, and taking care of their children and getting work, being a productive member of society or not. To think that people, whether they be male or female, have gone through this trauma, so many inmates in our prison systems have physical brain injuries. So many have PTSD. So many have mental health issues. So many have emotional issues. So many have raging drug problems. The scariest thing in, the world, in this world you will ever do is to go, with the, go to therapy because you have to confront what's happened to you. Uh, you have to deal head on with the things that have happened to you in the past. So you can give a person a bricklaying course or an electrician's course or a plumbing course, and that's all well and good. But until you come to grips with what caused you to do the things that you did to get into the prison system to begin with, until you come to grips with that, you're not really going to change. So technology allows us to look at an individual holistically to say to that person, okay, here's a course on, on trauma, here's a course on PTSD, here's a course on sexual abuse, and go from one to the other to the other to the other and do it through virtual reality of doing it through remote education and at least give individuals an opportunity to have a productive life. Because remember, the great majority of the people in the prison system today are in there for violent crimes. The, per the people who are not in there for violent crimes, they have a history of violence. So if you can deal with this to the point where the recidivism rate is cut in half, it's cut down by a third, you're going to be saving literally hundreds of thousands of additional victims of violent crime. You said earlier that in order to, for governments to really like uh, pick this up and run with it, uh, they would need to see evidence that it works, but obviously they can't really see that until they go with it. So to me, it sounds like a chicken and egg situation where they want to see results and then they'll put funding in. But then what is there not sufficient uh, results because there's no funding in this? And there is it um, a process that re occurs cyclically? Is there is there is this cycle occurring? And do you think this if it is occurring, do you think how can it be broken? I worked at the highest levels of the of state and federal government. I've had access to secretaries of public safety. I've had access to directors of agencies. So it's not like I was in the bowels of the organization and I could not express my point of view. I expressed my point of view. Lots of people expressed their points of view. 
we all agreed that individuals within our systems had so many needs that to really be successful, you had to address not just a few of them, you had to address all of them. But again, when the Secretary of Public Safety and you're sitting there having dinner and you're discussing these issues and he looks at you and said, Leonard, where's the money coming from? Where's the money coming from? Where, where, where am I going to get the money to do the different things that you want to do that I want to do? But there's no will from the governor's office. There's no will from the General Assembly to do these things. They're already complaining about the fact that we're spending too much money. And now you want to go in and ask for another 50, 60, 70 million dollars to do this uh, in terms of hands-on training. So we've all understood from the very beginning that scales. It's like any other technology where it scales. This scales. Technology scales. But we have to at least invest 10, 20 million dollars Per prison system, there have to be good instructors. Those instructors have to be able to relate to people caught up in the prison system. My strongest recommendation is using successful ex-offenders, and, and they exist, to provide the programming and to provide the treatment. But we have yet to convince except on the smallest of scales, we've yet to convince the powers that be that this will succeed because inevitably any member of any general assembly is going to look at you and go, Leonard, what are the odds of this work? And you're going to say, I don't know. We have, but it's, it's simply an experiment. It's simply something we should be doing from, for a humanitarian for humanitarian reasons. We do believe that it will reduce the cost to the state eventually, but I can't give you proof of that now. It's a hard sell. It's simply a hard sell. Do you think there will be a positive outcome out of this or are we literally stuck? Like, how is this going to change? This can't go on forever, surely. Like, do you think that this is going to drag on for a long time or where, is there, is there, I, I kind of want to end the show with a positive, but right now all I can see is like, we're stuck. Is there hope? No, we're, 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 no, 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 no. We really aren't stuck. It's going to take, it's going to take a Bill Gates. It's going to take an Elon Musk. It's going to take somebody from the technological community to simply say, you know what? I know how to do this. I know how to do remote learning. I know technology. Yeah, we can introduce this technology into the prison system safely and to go into a state and try it and experiment with it and, and have it done. I mean, there are thousands, if not tens of thousands of entrepreneurs out there who have the uh, technological savvy and the technological knowledge to implement this simply on humanitarian grounds, simply from the standpoint of trying it. It's simply a matter of somebody stepping up to the plate and moving with it because the government's probably not going to do it, but the technological community will. So this podcast, I'm assuming that most of the people listening to this production today, they've never thought of inmates. They never thought of people caught up in the criminal justice system. They never thought of juvenile offenders in terms of a technological approach to solving big problems. And through this podcast today, we're going to be reaching somebody who simply says, hey, you know, that guy Sipes makes a little bit of sense. Maybe this is something we should be working with this state or that state and trying on an experimental basis. No, I'm not trying to give the impression that all is gloom and doom. I'm simply trying to give the impression that it's going to take somebody from the technological community, another Elon Musk. So forget Mars. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's focus. Let's focus on your community. Let's focus on the safety of your community. And let's focus on better outcomes for human beings. And, and I think somebody out there would be willing to do it. Yeah. Well, if you heard that the next Elon Musk or Bill Gates, this is your call to action.
So yes. <laughs> please get up and save us all. Yeah. <laughs> and certainly the inmates. Yeah. <laughs> Len, this has been a fantastic call. Thank you so much for your time today. If people do want to follow you and learn more um, about the work you're doing, how can they contact you? I have a website. It's crimeinamerica.net, crimeinamerica.net. And most people reach me through my website. Anybody who wants to reach me directly, I'll give out my email address, which is not the smartest thing to do from a technological point of view nowadays, but it's <laughs> Leonard Sipes, L-E-O-N-E-R-D, S-I-P-E-S at gmail.com. But follow me through uh, either my website, my personal website at LeonardSipes.com or my Crime in America site or my email, and I'll be more than happy to engage anybody uh, who wants to explore this issue. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sam. Check this out. For this week's Tech This Out feature, a young Steve Jobs from 1981 debates the potential privacy risks with a writer and a privacy advocate David Burnham on a live Nightline news debate. All right, David Burnham, you have some concerns about computers, and I guess uh, in part they have to do with the invasion of privacy, and they do invade our privacy, do they not? They certainly do, and we have many examples from our history. Mr. Jobs said that the computer amplified the ability of man. That's true, but man, history tells us, has done good things, and he's also done bad things. The, the Census Bureau, for example, used computerized punch cards to help locate the Japanese Americans in 1941 when they were all, so many of them were arrested on the West Coast. All right, I, I keep borrowing this phrase from the NRA, you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Computers don't do that to people. People using computers do that. Isn't a computer in and of itself a, a, a neutral tool that can be used for good or, or evil? It is, and... Men use guns to kill people, and men use guns to hunt animals. The question is, is our society alert enough to understand the power of the computer and to turn it toward the good things, or are there people and occasions when we will use this tool for a bad purpose? Uh, Steve Jobs, I, I, I realize this is your baby, and you've made a, you've made a career out of it, but uh, you're also something of a philosopher. Do you see the, the inherent possibility of, of bad coming out of all of this? Well, I think uh, one of the things you really have to look at is you have to go watch some kids using these things. Uh, as an example, 97% of the high school students that graduate from Minnesota have hands-on experience with these personal computers, learning how to use them. We call this computer literacy. They're actually happening in, you know, in the elementary schools now. And you go watch kids interact with these computers. And what you find is far from something quite harmful. Uh, in effect, what you, what you see is an instantaneous reflection of a part of themselves, uh, the creative part of themselves being expressed. And it's just very, very difficult to see these kids using this tool and realizing that they're going to have these tools available for the rest of their lives to portray that as something very harmful. It's, uh, it's actually something quite democratic. All right, but I mean, the government, and, and I think Mr. Burnham was leading us in this direction, the, the, the government has the capacity by using computers to get all kinds of information on us that we're really not even aware that they have. Isn't that dangerous? Well, I think the best protection against something like that is a very literate public, and in this case, computer literate. And I think you're actually seeing that happen right now. Uh, in the personal computer area, again, computers that people can afford themselves, uh, we've already reached approximately one in every thousand households in the United States. And I think over the next five or six years, that figure will be one in ten. Ultimately, it will be one in one. And uh, I think the feeling of computer literacy among the populace is the thing that 
for me at least, gives me the most comfort that that centralized intelligence will have the least effect on our lives without us knowing it. Mr. Burnham, are you comforted by that thought that somehow we will all have the capacity to defend ourselves against computers by owning and being able to control computers? Well, I wonder whether the individual citizen alone is any match, say, for the United States Army when a few years ago it began surveillance programs of hundreds of thousands of people who were lawfully opposed, uh, voicing their opposition to the war in Vietnam. I wonder whether the individual citizen can control the army or whether the individual citizen can control the Census Bureau if it decides to break the rules and make information available which the citizen has given to it. All right, but on balance, are you for them or against them? I think there's a tremendous danger that the public is not aware of enough at this moment. I think if we are aware that perhaps we can use them for the good things that Mr. Jobs sees in them. All right, computer literacy, you're both in favor of that, and I thank you both very much for being with us. This is interesting because the importance of understanding how to use technology has been a reoccurring piece of advice from many guests on this show to help tackle the threats of technology. For example, last week, Dr. Lisa Stroman stated the best way to avoid negative effects of social media is to understand how and when to use it. In this video, they are discussing the potential threat of the government using computers to gather data on us, something we already know and we're aware of thanks to Edward Snowden and other whistleblowers. In one of our previous episodes, we discussed the importance of the dark web in order for individuals to remain anonymous online and protected against tyrannical governments. If an individual is tech savvy and operates using the dark web, they're more likely to keep their privacy safe and the same can be said perhaps with Bitcoin. Therefore, Steve Jobs' idea that a computer literate society is a safer society against privacy threats isn't without merit. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Go to sociable.co and subscribe to our newsletter to stay informed on everything we do. And you can also go to our YouTube channel, which is easy. It's The Sociable. Subscribe and you can follow our podcast on there as well. Alternatively, other than YouTube, you can also go to Spotify and follow us on there. We have new episodes out every Monday, so go to those sites and subscribe or follow us to keep up to date. Thanks and enjoy your day. Bye.